For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday, <coughs> excuse me, Monday morning, uh, and getting better little by little, but still got a way to go. Um, I'm going to do the bio today. It's a, uh, uh, the Vilna Gons brother. It's a funny resonance. I started a week ago, whatever it was, cause of the Gnosim, uh, catalog. I did the Vilna Gons son, Robert Ben Hagra, um, who was unusual type. Said, so and I mentioned, I was thinking of doing, cause maybe it was in the catalog. I don't remember anymore. Uh, something from his brother who wrote the Malas but then I decided, nah, it's more interesting to do the sun. Well, meanwhile, a bunch of people in Baltimore here who are descended, apparently, from the Vilna Gons brother, from Avram Regoler, as they call him, uh, wrote to me, and they're joining together to do a podcast. I should do a podcast about him. No, it's not about the son of the Vilna Gon, but about the brother. Both of the name was Abraham. So I'm, do, I'm doing it, to, especially the Tarragon family, which is, I would say, well-known in Baltimore. And they are apparently descended um, <clears throat> from uh, the Vilna Gons brother. So this is being sponsored by the following, by Alan and Tova, Alan Tova Tarragon, of course, in memory of Alan's grandmother, Rebson Fredo Tarragon. I don't remember her. I remember his grandfather. Anyway, he was a direct descendant of the Vilna Gons brother. And then by Ari and Esti Tarragon, in merit of Rufus Shlema for Esther Rivka Basniomi. Amen. And by Rachmiel and Nomi Goldman, in memory of her grandfather, Rabbi, oh, Moshe Dabatendo, of course, that we all knew. Okay, so uh, they're sponsoring today, and we'll jump right into it, which is a a, a funny topic, the Vilna Gons brother. <clears throat> the reason I say it is, <clears throat> first of all, it's always a misfortune to have a famous brother, because you always go and know it's the guy's brother, you never have <clears throat> a uh, identity of your own. But in reality, <clears throat> it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, and I'll tell you why. The Vilnagon's brother, older brother, by the way, um, was uh, was born 10 years before George Washington. So we're talking about somebody living in the, in the eight, 1700s, from 1722 to, I don't know, 1804, you know, some, something like that. Lived to be in his 80s. Uh, so he's the Vilnagon's brother. Automatically, that tells you from a very firm family, obviously, and so forth and so on. But he ain't the Graw. He was the brother of the Graw, and therefore the Vilna Gon had this unusual reputation, of course, for being a Chad Bedora. But the brother <coughs> uh, had a career in the Rabbinate. No, he did not have a career in the Rabbinate, actually. He had a career in the Magadate. <laughs> he was a Magad. He was not a rabbi. This is just interesting. So it's, and, th- and that's how he spends his life. And I don't think anybody would hear anything about him other than, you know, they say the Vilna Gon said, my brother's super from me, he's a Malach and all that. If it's true, you know, they always make these stories up. It could be true. <clears throat> no reason it's not. But um, but rather, he wrote the Miles Torah, which was published after his death, and that put him on the map, because many people have heard of the Sefer, although I don't think many people have learned it, uh, have read it. So we're talking about somebody, uh, to put this, the right spin on it, who was born in the 1720s, so it means he, by the time he's in the 1740s, he's already married and, and, and so forth. And from a young age, <clears throat> he became the Magad Mishar Glov. Now, that doesn't mean anything to most of you, but if you take the trouble to look at a map 
of uh, Belarus, I guess, you'll see that uh, Shklov is... I, I think I mentioned the other day in some context. Shklov is... A, <clears throat> first of all, had a lot of shackles to the Groth family. If you remember, the Vilna going son was there also. Uh, that's number one. So it was like a, a Litvish outpost, you might say, all the way on the other side of the Belarus, more in what became later Lubavitch territory, later. Um... Not in the 1740s and 50s and 60s and all that. Lavish didn't start till to the 1770s, 70s, 80s, really, you know. Um, so it's that part of uh, uh, of uh, Belarus, very Jewish, you know. And he uh, was there and then later had a, a, a post, not in Shklov, but in, uh, in what do you call it, Arigola, which is in the belly button of Lithuania, okay. So, and that's how he spends his life, basically. So he's a like we say today, he was a Magan in Baltimore, and then he was a Magan in, in <clears throat> Cleveland, you know, so to speak. Uh, now, Magan is an interesting topic, an interesting role. <clears throat> you're not the Rav, you're not Paskin and Shilas. That doesn't mean you don't know how to learn. <clears throat> is the, this is the post to which he was elected. The rabbinical position is hard to get those jobs, just like today, because, you know, he had to be in the right connections and all the rest of it. Uh Shklov already was a Gansesh Stutt. If he moved from there to Arigola, which was a Garnish, I don't know what that tells us. Because, um, and I don't know why he did that. Shklov was really, by the standards of of Belarus in the 18th century, was more like a big city, like a Baltimore or something like that. Arigola was like a, you know, a little village. I mean, you know, I think there are probably a hundred Jews there altogether, maybe 200. Certainly no more than that. So think of, think about what I just said. If it's 200 people, it's 30, 40 families, correct? You get what I'm saying? Take your mind out of the American thinking and put yourself back into the historical reality of the 1700s, 1600s. <clears throat> the Eastern Europe, Lithuania itself, because Aragola is in, in, in the belly button of Lithuania. <clears throat> it's not <clears throat> in Belarus. A small town. Garnish ain't nothing doing there, especially 18th century. There's no TV, there's no internet, there's no library, there's no books. It's garnished. <clears throat> you see, him? the Jews work hard <clears throat> from sunrise to sundown, and you know, some are in trade, and some are this, some are that, and life is lived, and then you die. I mean, this is how really the reality was in those years. I'm contrasting that to Vilna, where his brother lived, the Vilna Gum, which was by the standards of the 18th century, rocking and rolling. Vilna at a university, had a much larger Jewish community. You know, stuff was happening all the time. Fights were going on. Uh, there was farim, there were books. There was intercourse with other uh, uh, major Jewish communities. Not a place like Argolo, you know. Although Shklov was. <clears throat> so it's just interesting. So he had this position, in, in like I say, in one place, and then, and then he ended up in another place. And the end of his life, apparently, he just retired to to Vilna or something. Now, I mean, he's an older man. A Magid means like this. In the old days, the position of rabbi, which in America is combined in one, was divided in two. The modern American rabbi of a synagogue, I mean, a good one, you know, a good rabbi, is both a Rav and a Magid. He's there to give the speeches and talk about, and, and give the Musa Shmuzes, whatever that consists of with his Balabatim, and Hashkafa things, 
And at the same time, he's also supposed to pasken the Shilas, he's supposed to teach halacha, Gemara classes, and things of that nature. You understand? Um, that's the modern American rabbinate. Uh, true. Agreed. Now, and, and you know, it depends who the Balabadim are. For some people, to them, the most important part is the fact that the rabbi knows how to learn, can give a Gemara shir, the Daf Yomi, or this, that, and the other, the halacha class. And the speaking is less important. And for other Balabatim, uh, the speaking is the most important part because that's the part they understand. So what I mean is when he speaks on Shabbos or something like that, <clears throat> says it with a Parsha, whatever, that at least is the language they can understand. In Europe, this was divided. There was a guy elected to an office who was paid by the community called the Rav, and he's not supposed to give the speeches. He's supposed to be sitting and learning and Poskening and being on the local Besden and all that sort of thing, the Avbesdens. And these small communities, they couldn't afford, you know, to, 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 like to, to support a yeshiva or something like that. It's a poverty, you know, when you have a whole community of 100 people, 150, 200 people tops, men, women, and children, tell me how much money, you know, is, is out there. So the, the rabbinate was a, a position in which you starve. And same thing in the Magad. I mean, I just want you to understand the realities of it. it used to be a bitter joke. He used to say, I guess it's a good thing our rabbi is so from that he fasts on Monday and Thursday, otherwise he starved to death. You know, so that joke has a provenance. Now, um, that's one job. And then he doesn't have to be a speaker. And if you think about it, you know some famous Talmudic Chachamim. You may have friends yourself who are very good in learning, but actually aren't good at speaking. If you ask them to give a speech, give a sermon, something like that. They're not good at it. It's not their skill. And then you have another type of person who is good at the gab. He's good at the speaking. And he may or may not, depending, be good on the other side, which is the learning, the poskening, and all that. Now, and a lot of times it's both, but the person gets selected to one position over the other. So the person who's the rov has to know the shas and the poskim. The person who's the magen misharm has to know Ein Yaakov, Medrash Rabbah, you see what I'm saying? Those kind of things. Medrash uh, Tankum, of course. Um, if they're a little bit more sophisticated, they may know, you know, the Ramban, and the Chumash, and the Alshech, and the Rakhaim, that, that, that genre of literature. You understand? If his epic is really something that's would be unusual, his morale, that was very uncommon, very uncommon. Usually the people knew the Enyakos and the uh, and the Midrashim and things of that nature. So our hero was a Magid Misharm all of his life, not a Rav. Now I'm not saying he didn't know how to learn, I'm sure he did. And I'm not saying he couldn't have been a Rav. I'm saying, but this is the way his career took him. Okay? And he functioned in two communities, one larger, one smaller. And does he does. However, it's not as simple as that. Because... 20, uh, follow what I'm about to say. 20 years after he died, his descendants published his book called the Malas which means that he wrote a safer um, gathering together from all over the place anything where it talks about how great it is to learn Torah. Now, it's it's almost like a, a tautology, a truism today. Uh, if there's a book that you don't need to read, it's a book that tells you how important learning is because our whole society is on uh, unfolded in that direction. It's all about learning, but we're talk. But but here we're talking about somebody wrote this. Meaning, once upon a time, wasn't exactly like that. 
Uh, so it's the result of people like him that we've developed along lines where it's learning, learning, learning. Uh, but it's not so simple. Uh, and I'll tell you where I'm coming from. He lived through stormy times. Uh, especially if he's born in 1722, that's pre-modern. But between 1722 and 1800, even in Lithuania, there began to began the beginnings of number one the Haskalah, number two Hasidus. Okay, uh, number three, by the way, Russia, uh, because if you live in that part of the world, major political changes uh, kicked in in the late 1700s. Used to be when he was born in 1722. That whole area was part of the good old uh, lackadaisical kingdom of Poland in which the Polish priests ran everything and they screwed over the peasants and all the rest of it. And the Jews found their way of surviving. And from a from point of view, uh, life continued as it, as it had continued. But already when he was 50, in 1772, the Russians occupied a lot of his territory. In other words, Catherine the Great did the same thing that Putin doing, except that she was successful, right? Catherine the Great, who wove a web, the Empress of Russia, and it was only after a long period of intrigue, she was a lot smarter than Putin, uh, was able to get away with just taking a big bite out of Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, and all the rest, and she got away with it. And, and in, already in 1772, took over the area of Lithuania, and eastern Belarus, eastern Ukraine, and later on took more. It's what they call the first partition of Poland. So life changed as a result of that, and not for the better. And, you know, the, the old ways of life became discombobulated now under the Russian occupation, under Tsarist Russia. And the economy got screwed up. I've spoken about this on other occasions. There's a, a new book about it a couple years ago. Uh, I think it's called The History of the Shtetl or something like that. And uh, things became discombobulated. And it seems that um, when, let me put it this way, when the economy gets very bad, the learning falls down. Take a look at Israel today. They're able to have such an olamatora because the government pays for it. Notice they get millions and millions. Suppose instead of this last election, instead of BB winning, suppose the other guy won. It could be, right? It could be the other guy may have won. And um, let's put it this way. Hold on for a second. Yeah, sorry about that. The, um, was I saying, the, the, the life got really uh, turned upside down. And whenever the economy goes bad, um, there's no yeshivas at coal. There's no money to pay for it. Uh, and this seems to have happened in the late 1700s in the area you and I call Lithuania. This was, in the mind of the Litvaks, aggravated by what they perceived as um, the Hasidic attitude of disdain, the new movement of Hasidism towards learning. Now, I'm not saying it's true, but this is what was perceived. Because uh, the Balshemtov and others did go on record as attacking the learners as being very arrogant and into elitism and things of this nature. If you get that uh, book, Halichas Valochas Bachasidas, uh, he's very good on that. Um, you know, the Balshanto says, if you're learning, there's not Lishma, there's Pogum. And uh, and after all, let's face it, who learns Lishma? I mean, really Lishma. Especially 
the way the Baal Shem Tov talked about Lashem Lashem HaShchina and all that. Nobody learns like that. Very few people. Um, and the result was a perceived uh, decline in the learning. And you and I know today that Orthodox Judaism doesn't work, certainly in the modern era, uh, when, when the learning goes down. It's kind of funny. But precisely because we have the attacks of modernity on traditional Jewish life, the only way it's going to work is if people are into learning. So somebody who's, who is into, which has happened in our time. Okay? Today, we live in a time today, in the year 2022, in which there's, a, like today, for example, in America, there's the yeshiva world, and by that I mean there are whole synagogues uh, with Balabatim who graduated from yeshivas, even if they're MDs or lawyers or big shots and things like this, and you have a whole system of shiurim and dafyomis and all that other stuff. Uh, that's what keeps people in the straight and narrow to the degree that it does. If they did not have that, uh, they'd be gone. Or they'd be all the way over to the left. That's just how it goes. Now, this was not the way it was once upon a time. Long, long ago, you had the natural inertia of um, the small town old life. You know, you're born in Yaragola, for example, you know. You're born there, you live there, you die there, you marry a girl from there, and then you kick the bucket, you know. And you're going to talk Yiddish, and you're going to go to Shoal, because that's just what people do. And life is going to go on as it did before. And, you know, if you're not a learn, <clears throat> if you don't know how to learn, also good. And maybe the Chevrotelim, something like that, also good. As far as the basic bottom line, you're going to stay Jewish, your kids are going to stay Jewish, and they'll also be observant <clears throat> at the basic level. They'll keep Shabbos in a basic way. They'll know what Hanukkah is. They'll know what the other things are. That's before the modern era, which our hero lived at the very, very beginning of that. <coughs> Excuse me, I have a cough today. At the cusp of it. In the modern era, the winds of change, <coughs> even in Eastern Europe, were sufficiently powerful that the old system, minus something special, is going to collapse under the winds of modernity. Our hero was able to, to, to see that. Now, he was a Magid. So his job is to give speeches. And to give speeches, to be perfectly honest, in the old days, in the old world, you didn't give speeches like now, bar mitzvahs, you know, and what a wonderful family, the Cones, the Schwartzes, the Freedmans, and the others are, and I knew the Zadie and all that. That's not the kind of speeches they gave. The job was to give him hell, you know, to give Musser, and uh, cuss him out. And that's the old-fashioned way of uh, talking. And, uh, you know, some did it a little more bluntly, some did it a little less bluntly, but that's just a general way to do it. So, here we have a person living in the middle of the 1700s and the late 1700s, whose job, he's paid by the community to offer social criticism in a very traditionalistic type of way. That was his job. So, don't be surprised if he forms over the years the uh, point of view which is all the old stuff doesn't work anymore. <clears throat> Therefore, we have to uh, throw ourselves more into uh, more Limina Torah. Uh, even though Limina Torah is also supposed to be a high value and a supreme value, but that doesn't mean that it actually was in practice. And so here's somebody's pushing for it. Now, here's the funny part. Two books came out the same year, posthumously, in Lithuania, by two big Litvaks, 
with the same general theme in the same year. Uh, I'm talking about the Baalus HaTorah from our author, our hero, and the Nefesh HaKhaim, Mechaim Belezhner. Both of them were already dead. Our hero died in 1804. I think Mechaim Belezhner, I think, died in 1820, maybe, something like that. Uh, so they were both gone. And they both had the same idea in mind. But you know and I know the Nefesh HaKhaim took off has rocketed to uh, super status today. And the Malas much less so, which is interesting. Much less so. I don't know so many people who've, who've learned to read Malas who really got into it and are wild. Uh, I have a nice edition here that I bought, I see, in 1989. I have it in the back uh, <clears throat> long ago and uh, in, in Israel with the kudos. And it even has a famous commentary on it, which is not really a commentary, but it's like a running extra text from our hero's uh, follower, uh, Yitzhak Isaac Hubbard, probably the number one Makubal in Lithuania in the middle 1800s. So this is super Litvish. Oh my goodness, it's as dry as they come. Super Litvish. And uh, Yitzhak Isaac Hubbard was a major Makubal, and uh, really, they're two, and they're very Musari, and they're running along two similar paths. Except that, you know, Dora Torah, which the music eyes to cover, which is in the bottom, it's all Manuka, uh, is uh, more into the, I guess, the Kabbalistic nitty gritty, I guess you'd say. Something like that. But in a very moralistic fashion. Now, what did he do? Our author basically collected all the places where it talks about how great it is to learn Torah, which, again, to you and I living in, in 2022 is like, duh. But that's because we've had 200 years of being influenced by these type of books. So when these books came out in 1824, it had a certain hashpah on the elites in Lithuania uh, afterwards, down till today. And therefore, that's the world in which we've grown up. Um, if you're Hasidic, it's a different story. I'm talking about if you're not. Uh, and what's really interesting is, and this is really something you see from a Magid of the old school, uh, because uh, he saw that the old system was breaking down. And I'll tell you what I mean. It's very, very, very interesting to read the introduction of our hero, which is short, uh, to the book, to the Sefer. And he says over here in the beginning, you know, how, oh, Lima Torah is very important. Of course, we know that. And then he goes and says as follows, Call it Saras Abbas, Elena Machmas, Torah, all the trouble we've been having. See, I told you, he lived in a in times which are very complex because of the Russian occupation and the collapse of the economy and things like that. Um, and he died just before the Napoleonic invasion. So, Befrat Hadoras Alolu, Asher Azmanim Chalushi Adeus. Nowadays, we live in a time when people are Chalushi Adeus, by which he means people become more physically weak and therefore mentally weak. Me'anim Nelakayim Shubas HaMishkol. So it's no longer possible to make time to Shubas HaMishkol. Now, what's he talking about? As I've mentioned on other occasions, <clears throat> the word Teshuvah in Jewish history has several different translations, as I think you know. Uh, teshuvah can be an answer, like Charles and Shubas. Shubas can be return. Shubas can be repentance. Shubas can be penance. Repentance is mental. In other words, Charot Allah Kabbalah I promise not to do this sin again which from the technical halachic point of view is what their Talmud requires, right? There's a mitzvah of 
which consists of Charot Olavar uh, Kabbalah as I think everybody listening to this podcast knows. You know, you, you did something wrong, and you resolve that this was a mistake, and you feel bad about it, depending how nitty-gritty you want to go into it. You can read the, uh, what do you call it, the Shari Tshuva, those classics, and you have the Yoga and Anoch and all that kind of business. But the bottom line is you don't do it again. Okay? And if you want to get down very technical, Osa Isha, Osa Zaman, Osa Malka, whatever, you know, if the same thing pops up again, same opportunity, and you forego it, you resist the temptation to do it again, then you're about Shuba like that. Um, which is why when you read the Rambam's Hilchus Shubas, there's nothing there about tortures and suffering and penances and that sort of thing where you inflict physical pain upon the body of the sinner the, well, voluntarily, right? The sinner does that to himself. That's not in the Talmud, basically, with very few exceptions. There's one or two places, but highly atypical. Generally speaking, in the Gemara, and therefore in the Rambam's Hilchus, Shuba, which I think was a very, very well-known text, of course, uh, in the Rambam's Hilchus Shuba, it's mental, correct? It's in your heart. That's basically what it boils down to. I used to eat treif. That was a mistake. I see I made a mistake. I'm not going to do it again. Shine. Over. You get it? Over. Um, now, that's one way. There's a different tradition in Judaism, which especially popped up and was very popular in the Middle Ages. A little after Rashi's time started, usually associated with the Rokeach and the Sefer Hasidim in that Kufa, which is the 1200s. So these guys are contemporaries of uh, of the Rambam, but they're in Ashkenaz in Germany, Ashkenaz in Rhineland. And they came up with this whole business of um, physical penance. So it's not enough to um, to repent and feel bad about it and make up your mind you're not going to do it again. That's taken for granted. Of course you got to do that. Otherwise, nothing to talk about. But even if you do that, Belay Shalim, Benefesh Aguma, and all the rest of it, even if you do all that, it still may not be, it's still not enough. Because when you did a sin, you have no idea how bad a sin is. Okay? You have no idea how bad a sin is. Uh, who was it? I forget. Salanto used to make that point. Then the old days, uh, you look in, in um, Yechezkel, the prophet Ezekiel, he, he says, Lama Samusim Israel, that the people in his time said, we're, we, we, We've sinned, we've gone too far, it's not possible to do tshuva. And the Navi has to tell him, No, 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 even though you've sinned, it's still possible to do tshuva. And Israel Salanto used to say, See, once upon a time, they realized what a chait is, therefore it led them to yush. Nowadays, Israel Salanto said, it's the opposite. People say, I did a sin, all right, big deal. You know, another chattas. <laughs> you know? Yeh, yeh, hechsher. All right. Avi chattas shmeinah. You know what I mean? Others, okay, there's another one to to get, to, to, to think about on Yom Kippur. Fighter. We don't treat the sin with the, with the same gravity. With the same gravity. Now, um, in the Middle Ages, there popped up a whole culture of tshuva, penance. In which case, if you did something wrong, you have to hate yourself, or starve yourself, or have somebody hit you, or, I'm serious about this, or if you want to take it to extremes, uh, for certain Averis, uh, you have to uh, uh, cover yourself with honey and get stung by bees, or sit in freezing water, or things like that. Um, and, Ad Kedekach, then in the time of the Rokeach Roke- himself, who lived, you know, over the time of the Rambam, 
and uh, his buddy, uh, what do you call it, the Yudah Chosid, they actually devised Shuvah Samishkol, a schedule of penances, which is the same thing the Catholic Church had. They both came at the same time. And the idea was that uh, you have a list. And if you, um, if you, what do you call it, uh, did this particular Vero, this is how long you have to fast, or this is how many times you have to get hit, or this is the particular uh, torture you should subject yourself to. Now, I want to make one thing clear. These chubas we're talking about were not halachically required. The, the, the sinner wants to do it to get rid of the Avera, so you don't have to worry about it. You know, when your time comes. You know, you want this out of the way before you get to the pearly gates. But uh, the culture evolved in such a way that really it was kind of prescribed. Instead, the basin would tell people, this is what you need to do, and, and that's what they would do. You did this in Saveri, you have to walk around uh, without shoes in, in, in bad ground, things like that. All, all, all various types of, of this. And the idea was, Mishko, the, the pain should equal the, 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 the pleasure. Get it? Whatever pleasure you got from the sin, they should have the same amount of pain to balance it out. That was the theory behind it. Now, this worked for centuries. By that I mean Jews, Ashkenazim especially, had this as a major part of their culture. But the whole system is based on the idea that it's very atypical and occasional. Uh, I'm thinking out loud of a tshuva that I, knew, I know I've mentioned before with the Maram Lublin where a guy shot somebody by accident. That's a most unusual circumstance and it was a complete accident. It was actually the, the victim's fault. But nevertheless, they prescribed the penance. He has to sit down on the floor in front of the shul. Everybody should walk on him and all kinds of stuff. And crawl on your knees to, to the grave. All kind of wild and crazy things. But after all, how many times does somebody shoot somebody by accident? How many times does somebody kill somebody by accident? It's a terrible tragedy. It's atypical. Uh, suppose a guy shot somebody five, you know, suppose it happened every week. Then you overload the system. You know what I'm saying? You did it so many times. That, that you can't do the tshuva anymore on that, on that basis. There's a famous note of Yehuda, I think many know, Archim 35, in which the guy was in with the woman for years and years, and now he confessed and wants to do, wants a penance. And note of Yehuda like, how can we do a penance, you know? How many times did you do with her? Let's say for each time you do it, you fast 50 days. You did so many times, you have to fast till you, the rest of your life. It's not physically possible. You see what I'm saying? So our author... Our hero in the beginning of Torah says, people gotten weak. It's not possible anymore with people's um, um, delicate physical conditions to undergo these tough penances. You can't go and follow the old Svarim and the Sigufim, the tortures, the self-inflicted tortures. Okay? that are prescribed in the old books, which we hold from. In other words, we don't consider these books like nuts. The Sefer Chassinim, the Sefer Okeach, these are considered very holy in our culture. But it's just not possible anymore. It says over there, if you do one late sonus, one late sonus, you have to fast 120 days. Now imagine some guy, just give me an example. Of course this never happened, you know. A guy... Uh, shoots his mouth up and says some dumb, stupid thing, makes fun of the rabbi or somebody else, whatever, in shul. So that's a late sonus. Oh my goodness. If you go, they say for Hasidim, 
that person has to fast 120 days. Now, let's just think about this. It's 365 days in a year. How are you going to work out 120 tanesim? I mean, even if you fast one day a week, it's only 50. Okay? So when you're going to fast two days a week, it's only 100. So you'd have to fast the whole year, Monday and Thursday, besides the other tanesim, besides Tisha B'Av and Sarbatavis and so forth. Just imagine a guy who says every Monday and Tuesday for a year, and even if a year you're not done, there's only 52 weeks in a year, so it'd be a year plus. Who's doing that for one late sonus? So imagine if if if, if I did three late sonuses. I'm spending the rest of my life fasting on Monday and Thursday. You get it? That ain't happening. What I mean to say is like this. In Baltimore, Maryland, in 2022, in New York, in Muncie, in Cleveland, in Detroit, in Chicago, in Toronto, and so forth and so forth, they ain't sitting down and fasting 120 days. Um, you know, who who's fasting 40 days for a Torah, that kind of thing? They don't do that. You see? So we live in Chalusha days. Now, once upon a time, they did. So you would see people who were prescribed by a basin and you have to face 120 days. I don't know how they would undertake to, you know, you saw such people. You don't see it now. Suppose somebody had a, uh, lost his temper and was over on the aver of kas, of anger, right? He uh, screamed at somebody, whatever, you know. 151 tanesim. I'll say it again. So how many times are we talking about Monday and Thursday? 150 times. It's a year and a half. Holy Toledo. For Dibur Chol No comment. <laughs> right? Dibur Chol For saying one thing that wasn't Torah Tefillah inside Shul. For saying one thing, you'd have to fast 40 days in a row. You know, like Ramadan, you'd eat at night. Uh, for one, Dibur Chol. Basically, everybody would have to spend the rest of their life fasting, which means the system broke down. Okay? Think about what I just said. For deeper chol echa bebeis So once upon a time, people took this really seriously. They should, but I'm saying they took it really seriously. And when they were inside the show, you didn't say deeper chol. I remember, who is it? In, um, Zichwin Yaakov. In that famous memoir from Lithuania, from uh, what's the name, Yaakov Alibi Lipschitz, you know, who was the secretary of Yitzhak Lachanan. And he was rem- remembering from it, I don't know why it sticks in my mind. He was reminiscing when he was young and the Crimean War was going on, and somebody wanted to find out the newest thing. And he went into a show and he wanted to call a guy out, and he wouldn't talk. He would just say, until the other guy went out of show, and then he told him the latest news was happening from the front. Because you don't talk like that inside a show. I don't think we have this kind of sensibility today. We should, but this this kind of sensibility doesn't exist. So according to this, you'd have to fast 40 times for each Dibrachol. So on a typical Shabbos, the guy speaks 20 Dibrachols, let's say 30. So that's it's a 20 times 40 days. You see what I'm saying? The whole thing goes, So the system is broken down. Right? The system is broken because a person would have to li- live a thousand years, our author says, in order to fill all these Averas. So what should we, weaklings, today do? So here's a guy who was a Magid, who I'm sure was in his town, and probably they did their share of talking and shul and all the rest of it, because don't think that, you know, in these little towns nobody did that sort of thing. And he was probably screaming at them, for one deeper hole you have to face 40 days. But, you know, it became a joke because it's not real. Okay? 
And so you see, the old sensibilities in his time were dissolving. Now, by the way, it's very interesting because the Baal Shem Tov also went against the old system of super flagellations and fasting. And each one replaced it with a different way. The Baal Shem Tov replaced the old one with Chesidus. I'm serious about this. You understand? So notice, instead of torturing yourself and being down on yourself, try to uh, make more simcha shal mitzvah. Notice, supply it with something else. Uh, instead of fasting uh, 40 days, go to the mikvah 40 times. I'm, I'm very serious, you know. Uh, and by the way, I'm not saying it didn't work. He replaced the old system with a new one because in modernity, the old system wasn't working. Here, on the other side of the street, by the Litvaks, by the Misnagdim, because this is the brother of Elagong, that doesn't work. He's not going to supply it with Hasidus, but he goes on to say, So instead of fasting and all this sort of thing, it's got to be, if you said one deep rechol, to use a modern terminology, instead of fasting 40 days, you have to learn Mishnahis for the next 40 days. Okay? I mean, think about what I'm about to say. Suppose people were like this. They're not, but suppose people were like this. And they said, you know, I'm going to try my best when I go to shul not to have any dibrachol. If I want to talk about anything dibrachol, I'll wait till I get outside the, the, the shul, meaning outside the sanctuary. Okay? Wait till you get social hall. That's, that's a madrega. Okay? Now, wait a minute. Suppose I found that, oh, you know, I said a dibrachol. So in the next 40 days, I'm going to learn a mishnayis every day um, to make up for that avera. That would actually be very interesting, wouldn't it? And suppose I said I said two dibrachols. Like I said, I'm just making this up. Two dibrachols. I spoke to somebody, I spoke to my wife, I made a joke, this, that, and the other. So because of the two dibrachols, I'm going to make it. Two Mishnahs every day for the next 40 days. Right? If I have 120 Tanesim, suppose I kept a little notebook and I said like this, to to to, to um, atone for that particular Avera, so every day I'm going to learn, you know, like I say, a, a, a Mishnah for 120 days Something like that. It doesn't have to be a mission. I'm just, like you say, coming up with an example. So the learning itself becomes the, the flagellation, as it were. The learning itself becomes the, the penance. Okay? And of course, that doesn't hurt your body. You see what I'm saying? Uh, so he says, That's a nice play in the words. But you hear the word. Yeah, he's a, he's a magid. That the Torah equals bringing a carbonola, bringing a carbonchatas, bringing a carbonosham, uh, because that's what you can do nowadays. And he says from the Arizal, just this word, that in the old days you could uh, subject yourself to tortures and the kind of thing that I spoke a week or two about David Amel did to his body, which by the way shatters your health. Besides everything else, it destroys your health. And remember, in that world, they didn't have the food and the nutrition we have nowadays and all that sort of thing, and the medicines. So, to be perfectly honest, very few people could survive medically by one of these regimens of self-torture and all the rest of it. Because it would knock your health down, and it would make you, therefore, um, very vulnerable to catching illnesses and diseases. I'm not a doctor or anything, but I know that much. That if your constitution is bad, it makes you more available to catch all kind of uh, illnesses. And there were plenty of magavas running around in the old days. What I mean to say is just to survive physically. 
You had to have a good health and good nutrition and good constitution. And all this is going away. So the Rizal already in the 1500s said, But we, nowadays the Achronim who are Chalishe Mezik, who are weak in their physical constitutions. Now this is the Rizal talking, who by the way himself was weak in his physical constitution. I think I told you, he had a bad hernia, he couldn't go to the mikvah and all that. Uh, and the problem is, right? We have plenty of sins, and Bittal Torah is number one. And even somebody's trying to be from, so even somebody today who wants to change and, and become a Baal Teshuva, in the sense of somebody's doing Teshuva, Osim in a Tafel Iker, Dinatinus is Zigufim. He spends his time doing the fasts and the self-torture, all the rest of it, and not into the learning where it should be the other way around. Okay? Therefore, he wrote this book, to promote the Vekas at Torah. And that's interesting, because the Hasidim went to the Vekas. Uh, and I understand, I've read, I was really going that the Litvaks had their own definition of the Vekas. I don't know what that means, because... Dvek is already find in the in the Ramchal, you know, that sort of business, which you think about God all day long. I don't know why they need it, but apparently there was some kind of idea of Dvek is Batorah. So the basic idea, if you scratch away all the old rhetoric, is that, in other words, to use American terminology today, a person really gets into learning and makes it part of their life, that will change them, which is true. As a rabbi, I know that, and anybody knows that. You know, when you give speeches, it's garnished. Uh, and it's not garnished, but, you know, it doesn't have a long-term effect. If you want somebody to really become from, or to change, right? It's not what you say. You get them into learning, and sooner or later, they'll come across something in the safer, and it's between them and, and the book they're reading, and they'll say, hmm, I don't do this. Maybe I should start doing this. Or, hmm, I do this wrong. Maybe I should stop doing it. In a little quiet moment between them and nobody else, and that's the ones that really count. You understand? Because it's not for external reasons. The person comes to himself. So let's say, for example, again, this is not a good example. It just comes to my mind. I'm just making this up. Suppose a person does, uh, uh, say, whatever. Suppose a person says, you know, um, I don't want to eat glock. I don't know, something like that. But then he reads this, and he reads this after a while, you know, he reads that, you know, the Glock kosher is better or something like this, and it doesn't mean anything. And another time he reads Glock kosher is better. But a third or fourth or fifth time, he says to himself, just very quietly to himself, you know, maybe I better switch to a better kosher. You see what I'm saying? Maybe I should switch to a better kosher. He didn't go around and, 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 and thump, you know, bang the table or anything like that. It's a quiet little revolution. That's what he means when he say the Torah is maxal mutav. You know, the, 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 the learning itself. Now, as I say... This Sefer is somewhat simplistic to my mind simply because he racks up all the places throughout Shas. I mean, when I say Shas, Halach and Agoda, as well as Zohar, and those sorts of things. That's why Yitzhak Eisekhaber has it at the bottom over there. And, you know, uh, it's more or less an encyclopedia. It's just not organized. So I guess, let me see, this copy of mine does not have a, um, a, a index. I know there's a new one coming out. Swarm Chatter told me there's a, a new one that just came out. Um, 
a couple years ago or something like that. And I imagine the new one has a index. Then it's very useful if you are somebody looking for, uh, you know, that kind of speech. Because then you can look up what does it say in Parsha Vayeshev on this subject, or or a Medrash Rabba in Parsha Vayeshev, or you know, something like that. Or, you know, a Zohar even in Parsha Vayeshev that has to do with Lima Torah. You know, th- th- then I can hear it. If you, But in the old-fashioned way, he didn't have anything. I mean, this was published posthumously. So it's just, you have to follow through, you know, one mimer after another after another, and it kind of doesn't stop, okay? And uh, he even says, I'm pulling a page at random over here at the end. Uh, just because I'm talking about how important learning is, it sounds like just the learning itself doesn't matter what you learn and how you learn and how much shalolishma you have. Uh, and um, even if you don't intend to keep it, therefore I'm going to point out, and the rest of the book is how you have to do everything. But I'll tell you again. Um, Nowadays, wow, I see something over here that I highlighted from 20, 30 years ago. Um, oh, he's quoting his brother, the Vilnagon or something. On Yarf, Kamotar Lichi. Okay. Uh, wow, pretty good. I don't remember how it is highlighted. But the point is that t- he was writing that in the 18th century. In the 21st century, I don't think we'd even say you have to learn Amnas Lakayim. And if otherwise, it's no good. That's actually not true. Today, unless a person's coming from a completely secular, like Lakatrig, but if you're not coming like that, um, even a person says, I'm going to learn these halachas, even though I don't intend to keep them, that's fine. Because experience shows you, it'll drip into you. Get it? In other words, maybe this time you won't keep it, but the next time when you learn it, sooner or later, you'll start keeping it. Uh, that's that's been my experience. You look around the world, uh, you know you know how it goes, and that's why we try to get everybody today in some kind of a shear. That's really the reason, you know, whether it's a dafyomi or, or, or a mishnah or eh, whatever it is, because that's worth a hundred speeches and a hundred articles. Once the person's already so to speak converted, then he'll read the speeches and the articles. But the speeches and the articles, I don't think do the trick. I think it's the learning, especially, you know, in a in a fixed format uh, where, I mean, those who are in Takirov know this better than I do. You get the people out there, you give them a speech about changing your life, they're not going to do it. You know, if you don't pedal that, instead you just say, let's just learn the parsha of the week, and then eventually let's learn, learn some halachas, let's learn this, that, and the other. That is what changes people. That's, that's what I think. Now, his safer did not take off. As far as I know. I mean, the Malas Torah is a classic book. And there are many who have, have learned it. And I'm not going to knock it. And I did also years ago. That's why I have to highlight from long ago. But it's just a collection of one after the other. The Nefesh Haim is a completely different basis. Because it's a highly sophisticated. It's a much more elaborate and Kabbalistic way. And it actually presents a programmatic doctrine. Okay? Our hero is not giving you a programmatic doctrine. He's just showing you from all the different chazals how important the Lima Torah is, which of course it is. And there certainly are sections, as many know, in the Nevesh in which he lines up the exact same sort of thing. 
how important it is to learn to be mechadish and all the rest of it, and how in Shamayim it makes him happy and all, all that business. But that's a small part of a much larger text in which he lays, as they say, a theoretical foundation from Nefesh Achaim, from the creation of man and why man was created and man's relationship to Shamayim Varis, to the metaphysical world and to this world, and how the Torah fits in all that. Uh, that's not surprising. Uh, one was the brother of the Grah, the other one was like the student or, or close friend of the Grah. The brother of the Grah probably had not too much to do with his brother. I mean, I'm sure they had good relations and all that. But, you know, the Vilnagon wasn't a guy to be a letter writer like Benjamin Franklin every day. He was sitting there learning Yom Valila. And our hero is probably something along the same lines. So I know they all held from each other, but it's not like they had that, as far as I'm aware, didn't have that much intercourse. So their lines ran along parallel lines. Their lives ran along parallel lines. And so, um, he didn't have a yeshiva and didn't have to give these kind of expositions. He was a maggot in a small community. Um, Rabbi Chaim Velazhin was a different story. First of all, he was a big businessman. He was a multimillionaire. He, he, he was a sophisticated guy vis-a-vis the Polish guy, the, the, the priest and all the rest of him, the Russian government. And second of all, he was a Rosh Yeshiva. Therefore, he gathered together 50, 100 guys in his time who had good minds, and they probably discussed why are we learning, what's the purpose of learning, and he came up with the theorization of it, because that's what the Nevesh Chaim is. So if there are two books that profoundly affected the world, it's the Nevesh uh, the Litvish world, I should say, it's the Nevesh Chaim, the Malas but the Nevesh Chaim much more, okay? So I've been in yeshivas, I've seen people, at least when I was young, I've seen people try to learn Nevesh Chaim. It was much harder years ago. Now they have Manuka, now they have the uh, Aramaic stuff translated. I think they have Mefarshim now, I, I imagine, and things like that. There's one even in English. Uh, the Malasat Torah, I don't, I can't recall anybody learning that at Musar Sefer. Not that I went around and checked everybody. I just don't see that as being on the radar in the same way. But this much, I will say, both authors, Chambalaj on one hand, and uh, Rav Avram, the brother of Grub, saw that the only thing that's going to work in modernity is the learning. You know, whether they viewed it in a uh, mystical way, which they certainly did, or they viewed it even in a sociological way, as I said before, experience has shown us that the only thing that works nowadays, and I can't speak for Hasidim, you know, the only thing that works nowadays is the learning. You get someone in the learning, and they'll be from to one degree or another. You get someone who says the learning is not for me. You can't find something that works for this person, male or female, some kind of a shear or chabur or something like that, that works for them. And they just live a whole life all the time. Even if they're just observant, they happen to live in an observant community. It ain't good. You see? It's, it's already be pulling in the opposite direction. That That is how it goes. Um, so in a very mystical and firm way, you say, Hamar Shabbatar you know, the famous line, in Pagach Hamun, Ubozah in the Gemara, they're already talking like that. If you run into a Yetzirah, drag him to base of Medrash. What does that mean? The learning itself will do the trick. Uh, is this true 100% of the time? Nothing is true 100% of the time. But it's true a lot of the time. It's true a lot of the time. Is there a problem with, um, notice that the Baal Shem Tov's, uh social criticism accurate? It is accurate. We It does foster a culture of elitism, of Gaiva, I mean, it's true. You know, there, there is truth to that. And there certainly are plenty of problems within the yeshiva system. But you know what Winston Churchill said? 
a democracy is the worst form of government except all the others. <laughs> you understand? No, there's, there's nothing else that works. There's nothing else that's, that's better. Uh, the term Derek Harris hasn't exactly worked out. Um, the, uh, the other system didn't exactly work out. Um, the, to the degree that, I'll say it again, that you know you have a, a greater component of the learning. Now, what's interesting is American Jewry, because under the influence of these kind of things, uh, they produced the art scroll and that and, and all the English stuff to come along, which has facilitated the learning uh, tremendously. I mean, all joking aside, I don't mean this to be funny. Suppose somebody said between himself and nobody else, he said, "You know, I said a deeper chol and shol, and therefore." For the next 40 days, I'm going to learn a mission every day. I mean, with the art school mission, it's easy. Right? Especially the you know, the new set, you know, the dumbbell set and all that, which is great. Or Gamara. I mean, I'm just using for example. Or I'm going to learn, I don't know, you know, Peric and uh, whatever every day. It's, it's okay with me, whatever you do. But it's, it's, it's much more doable. And it could very well be that that one mission that the person does has more of a therapeutic spiritually therapeutic effect on the sinner than, uh, you know, a lot of other stuff. I think you would agree with that. I mean, that's that's what we observe in our modern American and probably uh, Israeli context. So uh, if you're interested, as I said before, the Miles of Torah has come out lately, also in nice editions. The one at the bottom, I never looked at closely because it's very dense. And that's from Yitzhak Isaac Hover. And that's not the safer. We're talking about the Sefer Malas Torah. By all means, go learn whatever you want. But uh, the upstairs, minus the uh, minus the uh, pierce at the bottom, it looks to me like it would be a, a fairly thin Sefer. Not 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 so, uh, you know, uh, it looks like it would be around 100 pages or less, the whole Sefer. Some, I, I, I estimate it would be something like 90 pages, something like that. Um, so it's certainly a very doable kind of thing. And um, uh, if anybody's interested, especially if you're related to him, that's the safer to do because that's his legacy. I think he wrote other things, but you know how it goes. It never got published, so we don't know. At least not to my knowledge. But the Miles of Torah became a classic of a, I would say a minor classic, okay? Uh, but it's interesting to hear two Litvaks living at the same time in the general circle of Vilna Gone, you know, in, in that orbit, one being the brother, one being the student. Uh, published, uh, it, it had had two books published posthumously in the same year, in 1824, um, along the same lines, which is uh, learning, learning, learning. I mean, what happened after 1824? That's 100, that's 200 years ago. What happened after 1824? You begin the, the you know, the, the, the yeshivas, the Lithuanian yeshivas, which are the only institution that, that worked. With all their problems, there are plenty of problems, but with all the problems, they're the only institutions that worked in the time of modernity. Anyway, uh, so I want to conclude by uh, thanking the sponsors over here. As I say, we have like a little colony in Baltimore between all the Tarragans uh, and the Goldmans and the others who were related to uh, to the uh, brother of the Graw, Rav Regola, as they say. Regola means, it means the second part of his life he was in Regola. And um, as I said before, you could do a lot worse than doing the Malas Torah. I imagine it's probably been translated to English. If not, it's one of those things that somebody who's interested in translating could do. But it would just be one source after the other. But in any event, I bid you a good day.
For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.